0: So I'm excited this morning, we're going to start a new series. Uh, we um, uh, have, uh, those of you who know, we love to um, take different books of the Bible and begin to unpack it verse by verse, and, and um, this morning we're going to begin uh, a series looking at 1 Timothy. Uh, Paul's uh, first of his pastoral epistles uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and then Titus Um, And so this morning we're going to jump into uh, This first epistle that was written by Paul Somewhere between 62 and 66 AD uh, Likely uh, while Paul was in a Roman prison uh, He pens this letter uh, to Timothy I, I find it interesting The majority of Paul's letters Were written while he was in prison and you know what? I'm sure during the time, he didn't like being in prison, but now with the luxury of hindsight, we can see how God needed to set him aside to do a great work, right? That we are still benefiting from in his writings. And you know, I just want to encourage you, you might feel like you're in a prison of sorts. You might feel locked in or locked away or um, uh, unavailable as you want to be. Um, I want to encourage you to use that season that God has you in for his glory. Because you know what? You You never know just what God might be doing. And so I'm sure oftentimes in that prison cell, I'm sure Paul was thinking, you know, I really would rather be more productive in the kingdom with the churches, not knowing that here we are 2,000 years later talking about the very content that the Holy Spirit had him write uh, to Timothy. And so um, he wrote this, he, 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 uh, uh, we, we, we know that Paul met Timothy when Paul was on his first missionary journey in Lystra. It's there that Timothy likely came to Christ, and, and then after his second return back to Lystra, uh, Paul invites Timothy to come with him. I love it. It's a beautiful picture of discipleship. He sees a gift in Timothy, and he's like, man, come with me on these missionary journeys. And so Timothy now leaves his home and follows along with Paul, and he's engaging in the different churches and in the ministry. He's learning, right, as he's being mentored by uh, the great uh, apostle Paul. And one of the churches that they went to was the church at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was an ancient city um, that is located in the region of Iona, uh, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, it was suited. It was, it was like right along the, the the coast of the the Aegean Sea. It was a very wealthy area, and uh, because it was a very wealthy area, it was it was it was really the center of all trade. Uh, it's where all the it was where all the the people gathered together. It was, it was kind of uh, the party scene of the day, if you will. Uh, there was a lot of idolatry that took place, and and a lot of false teaching that was beginning to influence the church. At Ephesus, and so while Paul and Timothy are there, and they're seeing some of the things that are that are taking place, they're they're seeing a lot of false teaching uh, that's beginning to uh, influence the church at Ephesus. Uh, they're seeing uh, some disorder that's taking place within the church. They're they're seeing unqualified leaders uh, in positions of influence long before they should be in a position of influence. Uh, they saw materialism that was uh, rampant within the church. Paul decides to tell Timothy, listen, I want you to stay behind in Ephesus and, and be a pastor of the church in this area. And so what we see in this epistle is Paul will address those subjects and more to Timothy on how to move or shift this this church from where it was to where God wanted it to be. So that would be a church that would be sound in doctrine, is the term that he he would use, that you'd be sound in doctrine. What is that? that? It means that you'd have healthy teaching. And so really what we see in the pastoral epistles is Paul's instructing Timothy in these epistles and Titus on how to be a healthy church with healthy teaching. Now, I know that's completely irrelevant in our world today. Everybody knows what, you know, all the churches are healthy today. And there's no crazy, I'm kidding. They're, they're, this, is, this is very relevant to today, right? And, and so the, the, the faces or the labels may be different, um, but the, 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 the reality is people haven't changed one bit. And so Paul will raise the awareness to Timothy on how to deal um, with these things. And so um, we're going to begin that journey this morning in verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul writes this. He identifies himself, obviously, as the author of this letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God and our Savior, uh, Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace Mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I like that. Timothy, my, my true child in the faith. It's not a title of condescension, but of, of, of sincere affection. This, this sets in motion uh, and defines for us the, the kind of relationship that Paul had towards Timothy, the, the posture that Paul has towards Timothy. He is, he is, it is a letter of instruction as of a father as of a mentor, as someone who wants to see Timothy uh, not only thrive in his ministry, but obviously wanting to see the church in emphasis thriving as well in what God had for him. And so we hear the heart of, of a father coming across um, to Timothy. This isn't the only place that he refers to him as a child of my of the faith. Uh, he writes about that, obviously, in these epistles. He makes reference to it in Corinthians and, and Romans. and, and the, These two had a very strong special relationship as Paul served as a mentor, a father uh, to Timothy Let's take a look at our, our the, the passages that we're going to look back. Uh, we're going to look at verses three through eleven this morning, um, and I'm going to read the, the full text to you. So don't get lost in the next couple minutes. It's not a break. I listen to where we're going, right? And then we're going to circle back. I think um, the, by doing it this way, you, you, I, I, it'll, it'll allow me to um, present it in a way that will be most easy to apply to your lives. You'll understand what I'm talking about as we get there. First um, Timothy chapter one. Look at verse three. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. I like that. Useless discussion. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. He says in verse 8, he says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully understanding this that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and the disobedient it's laid down for the ungodly and the sinners for the unholy and the profane for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers the sexually immoral for men who practice homosexuality for enslavers child traffickers and liars perjurers And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul shoots right out of the gate with a very clear... Instruction to Timothy to warn people against false teaching. What we see in this section of scripture, the first section we're going to see is Paul will highlight the points, the importance of being aware of false teaching, right? And then we're going to look at how we are supposed to address it from the heart, right? And so we're going to see these two: it's the what and then the how that we see in this passage of scripture. Now, this theme is going to continue throughout the epistle, but for this morning, I want us to kind of focus on. the what, which we'll look at in a moment, and then the how we are to address false teaching um, within the church. Um, Paul obviously addresses um, this, this area, not only here, but oftentimes within the epistles, the subject matter that the writers, again, whether it was Paul or John or Peter, they're having to address the issues of, of false teaching to preserve the unity of the church, the purity of the church, and the truth of the church. And so Paul writes this letter um, to them to address this. Now, obviously, some of the false teaching that, that was being presented was, was pertaining to their understanding and their application of the law. That's why he jumps right into addressing the subject matter of the law, where he talks about the law is good. Many in the church that Paul was referring to and addressing, many of them grew up as, as good Jews, and they, they were taught the law of God from the earliest of age. So there was a a familiarity with the law. However, they they, they missed the the true purpose of the law. They missed the intent of the law, the, the application of the law. And so when false teachers would come in and they would begin to twist the law, it caused all kinds of confusion as to how the law was supposed to influence their new lives in Christ. Paul makes it clear that God doesn't discard the law. God doesn't throw throw away the law, nor nor does he change the law, by the way. He doesn't lower the standard of the law. And and you know what? At no point did Jesus ever break the law. And so when you hear Stephen Furtick say that God broke the law out of love for his people, alarm bells ought to go off because that's, that's false teaching. If Jesus broke the law then Jesus was a sinner. You see, that might not sound like a big deal, but that's a really big deal. Because if Jesus broke the law, then Jesus is a sinner. And if Jesus is a sinner, then he couldn't be our perfect sacrifice. And if Jesus couldn't be our perfect sacrifice, then he couldn't be our savior. And so the whole crux of the gospel falls at the fact that Jesus was a sinner. And so those kinds of comments... Might preach well for him, but at the end of the day, we need to recognize that the law was not lowered for us, it was not excused for us, nor was it ever broken for us. We need to have a proper understanding of the law. And that's what Paul is saying here. Look what he says in verse 8. He says, now we know that the law is good if, if one uses it lawfully, Using it law, how do you use it lawfully? Here's how, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. That the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, for the disobedient. Right? For, for the ungodly, for the sinners, for the, for the unholy, for the, the profane, the sexually immoral, the, 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 uh, those who, are, who are in, practice homosexuality, those who are enslavers, those who are liars and perjurers. And then he says, and, and whatever else, by the way, is contrary to sound doctrine. Right? If you're going through that list, like, all right, good, at least they didn't hit my thing. Well, if your thing is contrary to sound doctrine, you're in the list. Right? Must be in accordance with the gospel. What Paul is saying about the law here is that it, no, it needs to be under it needs to, it needs to be used lawfully. I mean, it's quite a list that Paul lays out here. But notice the law is not laid down. Look. For the just. If you've if you've placed your trust in Christ alone as the only means of your salvation, if you recognize that the only way in which you can stand before God justified is because of the work of Christ on the cross, then you are the just. You are justified. And so what Jesus is saying here, or what Paul is saying here is the, the law is not for the believer, but for the lawless, for those who are are not believers. If you've embraced Christ, then you are in Christ. And when God poured out his wrath upon his son, who died vicariously for us, he absorbed the full wrath of God. That decree of guilt that was directed towards us is changed to decree of innocence because Christ, who fulfilled the law, died in our place, and we are therefore declared righteous because of those. And so the law is for those who haven't embraced Christ. They are judged, the scripture says, by the law. The law is the metric. Let's talk about a little bit what what ought to be our understanding of the law. The law is a metric, the standard by which guilt is determined. How many times have have you driven down the road not knowing what the speed limit was and unbeknownst to you, that while you're driving 35 miles an hour or 45 miles an hour, the speed limit was 20. And unbeknownst to you, you are breaking the law, right? But then you saw the sign that says the speed limit's 25 miles an hour. Hopefully, you slow down at that point and adjust your driving accordingly. But you know what? It didn't just become a law because of the sign. It didn't become a law just when you saw the sign. You just became aware of the law when you saw the sign. And more importantly, you became aware of the fact that you were guilty, right? You didn't become guilty when you saw the law, right? When you saw the sign, you just became aware of the fact that you had been driving guilty all along and the sign says guilty. Well, that's what the law does. It reveals our guilt to us, which is why Paul calls the law good. The law is good because when we see the standard that's in place, when we see the the law in place, what it does is it holds up and says, guilty, guilty, guilty. And our awareness of our guilt is what ought to drive us to Christ. That's what Paul writes about in Galatians chapter 3. He says this, before faith had come, before you were a believer, before faith had came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, look, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith, but after the faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The law serves as a tutor. Remember, how many have had tutors in high school, right? A tutor helps take you from where you are to where you need to be. The law helps us to realize you are guilty and under the wrath of God, and it points us to our only solution, Jesus Christ, and that's why Paul says but after faith has come we're no longer in need of a tutor we're no longer under the law of God and that's why Paul says the law is good because it helps us aware be aware of the fact that that we're guilty and so Paul warns them about the law and helps them to understand and there'll be more that gets addressed about the law as we move through the epistle but Paul talks about the importance of having a a right understanding for the law but he also tells them to warn against devoting themselves, verse 4, devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promise or promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. To avoid devoting themselves to myths and endless Genealogies. It is not specifically mentioned in the text what these myths and genealogies are, but it, it is likely that Paul is warning against false teaching and and distractions that were that were taking the focus away from the true message of the gospel. Right? Haven't you seen that? Haven't you seen some people get so sidetracked in, in other things that they that that the awe of the gospel is lost in them? And what Paul is saying is don't get don't get sidetracked. Don't go don't go into uh, all these things that are. these speculations uh, that that will uh, move you from the stewardship of the gospel that is received by faith some scholars suggest that these myths and genealogies may have been related to Jewish traditions that had been passed down, or or Gnostic teachings, some false teachings that were circulating uh, around the church. Some had suggested that possibly it was a preoccupation with ancestral lineage. Like, hey, do you know where I've been from? You know, where I come from? Do you know the stock that I come from? And it was kind of used as an opportunity to claim special status within the Christian community. People haven't changed one bit. The big takeaway here is Paul's warning, his warning serves as a reminder to to prioritize the essential teachings of the faith and to avoid getting caught up in irrelevant or harmful distractions. To avoid getting caught up. It It doesn't mean you don't address issues of concern. right? It doesn't mean that we ignore false teaching. It means, it means that we get so, we, we, that we're careful to hold in proper tension, proper perspective, the, the true teaching from the false teaching. doesn't mean we don't address it. We avoid getting so caught up in it that our motive is more focused on winning arguments than winning people. Have you seen them? Just combative Debating people, I see a lot of YouTubers who have who have made ministry who have made a ministry out of exposing false teachers. And, I, and I'll be honest, there's a there's a place for that, right? We need we need to teach people to discern between truth and, and error, and 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 so we need to hold in proper tension those two responsibilities as, as believers. Um, but I, I would say that I hope that they're very careful to ensure that their motives in pointing everything out that their motives are, are right and godly and God honoring it's important to have the right motive and that we're aiming at the, the right target you know the Pharisees thought they were preserving truth too right so we, we, need, we need to be we need to really be careful and steward rightly these things. Because here's the danger. The focus can be more on what everybody else is doing, which causes a a self-righteous pride instead of seeing what God is doing in us. And we can miss what God is trying to show us in our own hearts. And we need to be really careful. And that's what Paul addresses in the middle of the text. I purposely... Left it out. I want to go back to it now because what? If, so Paul talks about the, the, the false teaching. He talks about these distracting conversations that we that we need to um, uh, avoid, or stu- I, I don't want to say avoid. I want to say steward. Because again, I just I just I just highlighted a false teaching from a prominent speaker today. So it's not like I'm I'm, I'm suggesting we put our heads in the sand, but we need to make sure that our motives are right. And I want to make sure the people under my care are aware of the fact that that's false teaching, it's not true, and it attacks the very essence of the gospel, right? But now as we, as we consider this, section, this second section of the, of the passage, Paul gives us um, some instruction on what our heart ought to be like. What should, be, what should our posture be when addressing false teachers and false teaching within the church? Because Paul will drop some serious bombs in these next two epistles that I'm sure disrupted the, the comfort levels of the church then, and I know will disrupt the comfort levels of the church today. And I'm not going to steer I'm not going to shy away from those things. I'm going to let the truth go where it needs to go. And and, and but I want to make sure that I'm doing what Paul says we need to be doing and it's how we present those things that is so critically important. He says this in verse 5. The aim of our charge. And that's what we see all throughout this text. He's charging people, right? The aim of our charge is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of our instruction is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I love that. In the midst of all that Paul is about to say, amidst, in the midst of everything that's going on in their day, he presents the how. Here's how your heart needs to be when you're addressing these issues that you see rampant in the church at Ephesus and in, in our day today. The motive is love. Love. And what is that? Well, that's a, that, that's, a, that's a term that just gets used so flippantly today, right? We apply it to everything. It's like a great sense of like. It's an emotion. It's this, it's that. Love is grounded. Love is God, first of all, right? Love is grounded in truth. And so what we recognize is Paul's admonition is that the aim of our charge is love. And this love that that we, that we ought to present is it issues or, he says, it pours forth or it, it flows out of something. This love that is from God, it flows out of something. What does it flow out of? He says it flows out of a, out of a pure heart. What is that? A pure heart is one that is not tainted or contaminated by, by fear, by jealousy or revenge. It's pure, right? We've gotta make sure that, that our motives isn't to put people down to make ourselves look knowledgeable and good and right. Our motives and our heart needs to be pure. How do I know it's pure? A pure heart is an examined heart. A pure heart goes before God the Holy Spirit and asks, show me what's going on on the inside. He says it, is a, it, is, it ought to be love that, that flows out of a pure heart and a good conscience. A good conscience, what is that? A good conscience is a clear conscience. It is a checked conscience. It is a, an examined conscience that considers what are my motives? What is influencing me, right? What's my end game here, right? Why am I bringing this out? What's my motive behind it? And when we, when we ensure that our motives are right behind it, our, we can walk away with a clear conscience. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a a sincere faith. What is that? You see, this good conscience is not formed by my culture. Amen? The culture can't inform our conscience. It pollutes it. My good conscience is informed by my culture. It's not informed by my my upbringing and my intuition or any outside influence. My good conscience is, is informed by a sincere faith a genuine faith in Christ and his word. And so what Paul's laying out for them and for us is the way in which we are to address these things is, with a, is, is to be motivated by love, love that, that pours forth out of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a, seer, a sincere faith. This is the criteria that must precede It must come before the correction and the direction of others. It doesn't mean we don't correct. It doesn't mean we don't direct. We're called to do that as believers. But before we open our mouth, we need to open our heart to the Holy Spirit and and examine and make sure that we are doing it with a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. We must have as a goal of our charge, love. Love. And there's a, there's a danger when our motives aren't love. When that's not where it needs to be, there's danger. Look what he says in, in verse six. The aim of our, verse five, the aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart, and a good conscience and sincere if you're, if you're faith. Look, certain persons, by swerving from these, from what? From a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they, have made, they make confident assertions. So when we don't check our hearts, if we don't present them before the Lord, he says, some have wandered away into useless, into vain discussions, discussions that don't profit anything. You see, here's the danger. You can be saying the right things with the right motives, and eventually, you'll become the very thing you claim to be fighting against. If your heart is not right, you'll become that which you despise. Look at the Pharisees of the day. I mean, the Pharisees get a bum rap. I mean, I recognize, uh, like, we, we, we see them, you know, uh, in, in light of, of, of Jesus' addressing them and correcting them and everything, but in the end of the day, the, these, were, these were men who were, who were committed to the law of God. They sincerely believed that what they were taught was true, and, and they served God with a, with a tenacity that was unrivaled in their day. They were extremely sincere. They were sincerely wrong, but they were sincere. And if their hearts were right before God, God would have showed them where they were wrong. We're no different. We need to make sure that our hearts are right. I need to make sure my, my heart is right. For I draw conclusions and ascribe titles to people wrongly. I want to wrap up the section this morning talking about the dangers of, of ungodly motives. There are certain influences that shape ungodly motives. So I want to talk, talk about that. I want to look at some of the, the benefits, the blessings of godly motives. And then we want to obviously take a look at the example of Jesus. And so um, in the next hour, I want to cover the... Um, <laughs> No, I'm, I'm going, to take, we're going to Keep up with me here uh, Four primary influences Behind ungodly motives There are certain characteristics That will influence if, if, if we're not careful If we're not guarding If we're not checking our heart If we're not asking God to show us What's going on in the inside Here's four, There's others But there's, these four primary areas Can influence us wrongly And present ungodly motives Number one is pride Pride so much of our sin is motivated by pride, isn't it? A desire to appear more godly, to be appear more knowing, right? More mature, more righteous, more correct. It's even dri- it's driven by a desire to elevate self over others so that we would appear better than they. This leads to a sense of, of superiority and self-righteousness now we don't say that's our goal we just say things that make them feel that way now before you start wondering who i might be referring to let me point out that this disgusting pride resides within the hearts of each and every one of us each and every one of us pride is the stench and the substance of the sin nature Every one of us, including myself, and right at the top of the list, I've got it. And that's why I got to go before God to check my heart. We avoid being influenced by pride, by purifying our heart, by repenting of pride and ensuring that we have a good conscience that is informed by a sincere faith in God and his word brought to our awareness by God the Holy Spirit as we allow him to examine our hearts. Number two characteristic that influences ungodly motives is anger. When anger is influencing our desire to bring correction, it will often manifest itself in self-righteousness. This self-righteousness will paralyze our ability to see people as God wants us to see them. It will keep us from the ability to bring correction and compassion and empathy the way the scripture encourages and calls us to do it. This also can result in the damaging of, of relationships in families and communities, pointing things out out of anger, never brings unity, it only brings division. You could say the right thing the wrong way, it becomes the wrong thing. Now we need to be careful not to confuse anger with what the scripture refers to as, as righteous anger, which is the, the stirring emotion to ensure the holiness of God is not undermined. And that's a good thing. Anger seeks to preserve and uphold self, righteous anger seeks to uphold the holiness of God and we need to pursue that but not be governed or controlled by anger again we avoid being influenced by anger how by purifying a heart by repenting of anger by ensuring we have a, a good conscience that is informed by a sincere faith in God and his word brought about by the Holy Spirit that is within us third characteristic that influences ungodly motives is jealousy sadly much correction is driven by, by jealousy which is certainly a source of pride as well people often tear down what they don't have justify what they don't have by tearing down people who do have that I see this, I see this oftentimes amongst pastors um, as soon as they see a church being blessed and growing well of course they're growing you know they're selling out the gospel they're this they're that and they get so caught up in, in assigning a, a bad motive really what's going on is this jealousy in their own heart and if they'd spend more time working on their own church instead of looking at everybody else's church maybe they'd see some fruit within right and, and I love those conversations with pastors um, je- jealousy is the enemy of contentment we're going to be content with all things Jealousy is the enemy of contentment and when your motives are influenced by jealousy, you assign wrong motives to others and you miss the good things that God has already placed into your life, right? We avoid being influenced by jealousy by purifying our heart, by repenting of jealousy and ensuring we have a good conscience that is informed by a sincere faith in God and his word brought to our awareness by God the Holy Spirit within us. The last influence to ungodly motives I wanna point out is the motive of control, trying to control somebody. It's important to ensure that correction or direction that's being brought to someone isn't influenced by a desire to control them. How many times? People that we love, people that we really sincerely, we want them to get it, and sometimes we can cross a line in trying to get, the, get it. Like, you know, like you just want to, you know, the old two-by-four ministry, you want to kind of get to, the, like, understand what I'm saying, right? Our motive might be good, but really, if we got honest, what we're doing is we're controlling the narrative. We just want them to get it. And we will do whatever we need to do to do it. We need to be careful that a desire to control them doesn't move into the area of of manipulation so that that person then, instead of listening, runs. Causing them to feel oppressed which is the exact opposite of what, as Christians, we ought to be walking in the freedom, the joy of the Lord, right? And so, I mean, I just know, listen, my advice to people at times, I'm sure I crossed that line at times, <laughs> where it was just the desire to control, right? Because you want the person to get it. But you know what I've learned? So does God, and he does a better job at that than I do. And you know what? Well, here's what happens. When I, when I relinquish control, I step aside and I let God do what only God can do. He's had to do it to me and he can do it to them as well. And so we need to be careful that we're not being influenced. I know know control sounds like a really negative, bad, sinful thing, but the reality of it is a lot of times it's love that's misdirected and misguided. And we need to identify that. How How do we identify it? How do we avoid being influenced by control? By purifying our heart. By repenting to God of controlling a situation and ensuring that we, that we have a good conscience that is in, informed by a sincere faith in God and his word brought to our awareness by God the Holy Spirit that is within us there are other areas but, but here, here's the thing when we, when we go before God he is willing to show us those things so that we don't walk in them Four benefits of godly motives that I want to highlight to you real quickly. Four, what what, what what are the blessings and the benefits? Why do we want to do everything we can do within our power to ensure that our motives are pure, that we're being controlled by love and, 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 and a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith? Why do we want to see that? Well, number one, because then we reflect the love of God. And that's exactly, I mean, that's what we do as believers, right? That's the goal of our, of our sanctification, is to reflect Jesus in the world around us. Godly correction is motivated by love. Why? Because God is love. And we are to reflect what God is. And so when we, when we, pat, when we cast our motives aside and we were only driven by a sincere faith and a sincere desire to see someone flourish in their walk with God, we're reflecting the love of God. Number two, another blessing, another benefit is this. We see brethren grow. We see our brothers, our sisters, we see them growing in, in their faith. The goal is to see people respond to God and grow in their faith and their character in Christ, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's ultimately the only reason why you want to bring Conflict to people. That's why you want to bring correction to people and direction to people so that they would grow and flourish and be everything that God has designed for them to be. Nothing is more exciting than to see the transformation that God brings about in the lives of someone and when you've had an opportunity to, just in the smallest way, be a part of that. What a blessing from God that is. Number three, it's important because we protect our brethren. When our motives are right, when our motives are godly, we protect our brethren. Sin brings consequences, right? And when a brother or sister repents of their sin as a result of us going to them in a godly way, they avoid the consequences of, of continued sin that follow. And so when our motives are right, we can be assured that we are, we are protecting our brother, we're protecting our sister, and Amen. don't do this. There are consequences for those decisions. Sometimes the grace of God and the protection of God comes through the voice of a brother or a sister who brings correction with godly motives. Don't run from that. Embrace it. We protect our brothers, and then lastly, we, we protect ourselves, as mentioned earlier, godly motives protect us from falling prey to the sins of pride and anger and jealousy controlling of others within our own hearts. And so when our hearts are right before God, that is a protection mechanism to ensure that we will not fall prey to those very things that we are addressing. Paul writes this to the church of Galatia in chapter six in verse one. He says, brother, if anyone... Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, ignore such a one. It's not what he says. That's what people do today, right? That's the, that, that, that's the opposite of control. It's, 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 it's apathy, it's not addressing things. We know we, we are to address these things. Look, look what he says If anyone is caught in any trespasses, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You don't ignore it, you go after them in love with the right motives. Then he says this, look, keep watch on yourself, lest you also be tempted. When we go to people with the right motives, when we address things with the right motives, we are protecting ourselves. He says earlier on in chapter five and verse 15, he says, look, he says, when he speaks to the church, he says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out, lest you be consumed by one another. And there's been a many a person that has addressed the thing without the right motives, that they became the very thing that they were seeking to address, but with the wrong motives. Lastly, look, let's look at our ultimate example, Jesus Christ. Number one, Jesus always presented truth. He always demonstrated how error was in fact an error, right? He, he combated lies with truth. That's the way we, that is the a tool in our arsenal. It is the truth of God's word. We are to always present the truth, not a feel, I think, I learned, I heard, I read. No, we present truth, we, we, we present truth to error to expose error for what it is. Jesus always presented truth. Number two, Jesus always corrected with love and compassion. He didn't ignore sin. He didn't allow people to make excuses for sin. He confronted it. But he always did it with love and compassion in his heart for them. He always corrected them for them. Then thirdly, Jesus' motives, Jesus' motive was to bring about transformation in the lives of others. That was the goal, that's why he brought correction, that's why he brought direction. He was not about shaming people. He was not about condemning people. That's what they were used to from the Pharisees. We see I mean, you remember the scene in, 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 John, in John chapter 8. They, set, they try to set Jesus up. They find a woman who's caught in the very act of adultery. They, they throw her at the feet of Jesus, and they say, Jesus, the law says that she should be stoned to death. What do you say? And Jesus, knowing he's being set up by them, says to them, you who are without sin, you cast the first stone. And one by one, they start walking away. And now here you have this woman who was guilty, who was rightly deserving of being stoned by the law. And Jesus says to her, Where are your accusers? And she says, There are none. And then Jesus says, Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. It's the invitation to a new life. What you were living in the past, you don't need to live like that anymore. Go and sin no more. The motive of Jesus was not to slam and embarrass this woman, but was to build her up and to send her out into a new life. Go and sin no more. That ought to be the motive, the drive behind every correction that we bring to see our brother and our sister in Christ thrive into what God wants for each and every one of us. Paul will talk about this time and time again, subject after subject, all throughout these epistles. And so Integrity Church, let's never avoid correction and direction, but let's make sure that the aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that it, it is indeed a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It, it shines the light on the way, in we are to walk, the way in which we are to walk. Lord, I pray that you would allow this message to uh, land in the hearts of each and every one of us in a way that, um, that will bring forth fruit and honor and glory to you and to you alone. Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us. We give you thanks and praise in Christ's name we pray. Amen, amen. Let's stand together and let's respond to God in worship.